Hello everyone, welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Steve Linsanier, and if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and out of the field of public health. Today, we're excited to present a recent virtual panel discussion by the UI Injury Prevention Research Center and the College of Public Health Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, entitled A Safe Place to Play, Reclaiming Public Spaces to Strengthen Community. The event was moderated by two of our very own UI CPH PhD students, Chelsea Hicks and Robin Espinoza. Here is their recent webinar. So welcome to A Safe Place to Play, Reclaiming Public Spaces to Strengthen Community. This is a panel discussion on youth, community, and violence prevention. My name is Chelsea Hicks. Um, <laughs> hi, my name is Robin Espinosa. Uh, Chelsea and I are fourth-year PhD candidates at, in the uh, Occupational Environmental Health Department at the University of Iowa, and also trainees in the Occupational Injury Prevention Program and the Injury Prevention Research Center. So we are so glad that you could join us for this event today. And we're just going to cover some brief housekeeping at the beginning. So this event is being recorded and it will be available for viewing later. And we also would be remiss to not acknowledge all the people who kind of put this event together. And so this College of Public Health Spotlight event is sponsored by the University of Iowa College of Public Health Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee and the University of Iowa Injury Prevention Research Center. So we're going to start off with watching the trailer from the Pine Point film. And then following that, we will introduce the panelists for the discussion. You know, that's sadly commonplace in the most dangerous city in America, right? The, the poorest city in America. Camden, New Jersey, just across from Philadelphia. The FBI reports Camden had the highest rate in the nation last year for its size of violent crimes. My mom told me to promise her something. So I was like, what? She was like, no, say you promise. So I was like, oh, I started laughing. So I was like, oh, I promise. She was like, that you go and play baseball. Uh-huh. So I couldn't take my promise back. Change that is coming to the city of Camden. And let's play ball! So we are so excited about the panel um, that we have put together today, full of wonderful speakers who will help us discuss the relevance and importance of the themes that were presented in this Pine Point video. We have Sylvia Ortega, who is a high school programs coordinator for the Bridge to Enter Academic, uh, I'm sorry, Bridge to Enter Advanced Mathematics or BEAM program based out of New York. Mirazin Ramirez is a professor in the Division of Environmental Health Sciences at the University of Minnesota and a principal investigator for the study Link for Equity. Mark Berg is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminology and the, Depart and the director of the Crime and Justice policy program in the Public Policy Center at University of Iowa. And Albert Sharp is the founder and CEO of Invisible Book Bag, Inc., uh, based out of Chicago. Unfortunately, our fifth panelist, Luana Nelson-Brown, wasn't able to join us today. 
So panelists, um, I wanna thank you first for being willing to speak today on the panel. And I would like each of you to share more about what your work is and reflect on um, how your work is impacted uh, by the themes that were presented in the film. Anyone can feel free to start. I can start. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Sylvia Ortega. Um, as Robin said, I am a high school programs coordinator at a nonprofit called Bridge to Enter Advanced Mathematics or BEAM for short. Um, we're a nonprofit that's committed to closing the gap that exists um, in education and in STEM, particularly between um, low-income marginalized students of color and their more privileged counterparts. And so we provide a variety of experiences, mentorship, resources for students to just basically be at the same starting line as their counterparts that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. Um, and I think in particular for me, something that I found very powerful um, within documentary reminded me for one about my hometown. I was born and raised in the Bronx um, and I still live there now. Um, and the Bronx is a very impoverished county. Um, in particular, one of the poorest districts in the Bronx is, um, or one of the poorest districts in the country is in the Bronx and it's about 10 minutes from where I live. Um, and so there was this reminder of this theme of numbness and how young people continue to be numbed by this violence and stuff that's com coming around in their communities. Um, and so something that I continue to think about is like, how do you unlearn numbness, right? So like, how do we unlearn something that's kind of passed down generationally because trauma is gen definitely generational. Um, and it's also just surrounded by us at all times. And so if a young person is growing up in a community that's very violent and impoverished, how do you unlearn that this isn't normal, that this should not be normalized for them and they shouldn't pass it on to their, you know, their offspring and so on and so forth. Um, so definitely just, you know, a lot of the themes that I was thinking about in the work that I do and just watching the documentary was, you know, how as we as educators can educate young people that their surroundings are really a product of a messed up system that was not created for them um, or with them in mind. Um, and how do we use that power to really feel the work that we do? Um, so a little bit of my thoughts um, and I'm happy to share more later. Good afternoon. My name is Albert Sharp. I'm presently employed by Abilitated Systems, which is the largest African-American social service agency in the state of Illinois. We annually service over 700 clients in our child and welfare department, over 3,500 in our other care centers. Today, I'm sitting before the panel as the CEO and co-founder of Invisible Book Bay. It's an, uh, an organization that came of a group of men sitting around talking. The name is unique. Invisible Book Bag is about a concept, an, an idea. Every day our kids wake up with this invisible book bag on their back with internal and external issues going on. And we as adults don't recognize the trauma or the depression, the signs of anxiety. We quickly make the assumption that they're a bad kid. They don't, they're dis disrespectful to the adults. They don't want to follow social rules. They're not socially acceptable behavior. And then we also have to make sure the kids understand they have to take some of this ownership because they're not able to articulate what's going on internally. But that articulation comes from 90% of the adults that became in their life have failed them. And when you think about it, take a moment to think about it. When you were little and you wanted them Jordan, your mama said, you can't have them, failed you. When that teacher didn't give you the tools or the resources to do, what failed you? When that church that you looked was the pillar of the community was not there anymore in terms of 
supporting the community, what has happened? Failed you. So kids get this unwritten rule of non-trust of adults. So watching the movie of Campton, the first thing came to my mind was that could be Detroit, that could be LA, that could be the west side of Chicago. It's an inner city anywhere in the country of the United States. And what was so sad is that we have a university of environmental dysfunction within our community. Our kids are becoming a product of the environment which is dysfunctional. There's no traditional family structure anymore. There's no one they can really turn to and say, I need help unless they find a way to trust. So that's what I took from there. It's, it was a lack of trust in the, the movie and it's the lack of trust that we, our kids face today. Thank you everyone for um, inviting me to participate and for all of you who are attending, we appreciate it. Um, my name is Mark Berg. Again, I'm an associate professor in sociology and criminology and some of my research focuses on uh, increasingly so how the social environment comes to affect the physical health of children and adults. And some of this focus now includes um, uh, work or methods that allow us to assess how this affects the, the biological functioning of individuals, including the extent to which their cells are aging at a rate that exceeds or is less than their numerical or calendar age. We also have examined cardiovascular disease risk and other concepts, including allostatic load. And the message is rather straightforward. It's that this kind of chronic exposure to early life toxic stressors, which are so obvious in this film, um, leave a kind of a lasting imprint on the health of individuals that can be assessed at the biological level, at the epigenetic level. And some work shows that these things are very difficult to unwind. People, of, of course, are resilient. And, um, but still, what occurs to people when they're before in their first 10 years of life, even their first two years of life, in terms of exposure, both direct and vicarious exposures to these types of stressors, has a lasting effect that we're detecting among people in their 50s, um, women, in a longitudinal study. So there are two things that I watched the film and there were two things that um, stood out to me that I think are worth reflecting on just for a moment. One, I, I was um, kind of uplifted by the message of hope with this park and the dedication by the individuals to provide children with a place to play, which all children enjoy, a safe place to play. And that throughout the film, I think, um, illuminated how important social capital it is and how important it is to have people in communities who are invested, even with limited resources. But that was offset by um, uh, the themes which struck me and still this morning I was thinking about, and that is these children are kind of carrying, as Albert alluded to, this burden of uncertainty, risk, threat, all in an environment with limited support. And many of them had negative interactions with institutions that have effectively failed them, the police, the schools. You know, and I was struck by how the children viewed the police and they felt one child remarked they were did more harm than than uh, the drug dealers. I think his father had been in prison. 
and these are young people. And so we know that this type of exposure has effect, affects their behavior and life outcomes. But I think the work that's, uh, it, the evidence is increasingly showing that that type of environment has profound effects on uh, social inequalities and physical health, which we're, we've documented and researchers have for decades. So it's a, it a very good tool, I think, for to, to, to form a discussion. Well, um, so I'm Marizan Ramirez, and I'm really honored to be here amongst uh, just a fabulous group of people who can speak, you know, from the community, from research about um, violence and how it impacts youth, especially youth of color. Um, so uh, through most of my career, it's, I've focused on injury and violence prevention, especially in stigmatized populations, um, you know, and as over time really started to grow towards developing testing community-based interventions. Um, and there are people here, Corey Peak Asa, Linda Snetzler, I think I've seen, I saw, see her amongst the panel, uh, or I'm sorry, amongst, amongst the attendees, Lisa Roth, um, Sato Ashida, who I've worked with and continue to work in this space. Um, so I wanna thank them for, you know, collaborating me, with me and finding really ways to develop evidence-based approaches to prevention. Um, so um, I was gonna tell a little, bit, a little bit about where I grew up. I grew up in Los Angeles, the 70s and 80s, um, when gang violence was prevalent. I had friends from schools, from school, a um, couple of family friends who were jumped into gangs. Um, and my father worked as a counselor um, in South Central Los Angeles. He worked in um, with black brown kids who were trapped in gangs. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting because I found myself um, really drawn to the school environment as a place for intervention. And as many of you know, most of my work is based in schools. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about an intervention link for equity and um, Chelsea and Robin, thank you for mentioning that. Um, that work actually started in Iowa after the floods and we were working with Cedar Rapids community, a community that was dev devastated by the damage of the floods, but who were the people, who, were, who was the community that was particularly impacted were those families of color in impoverished parts of Cedar Rapids. And their school district actually suffered quite a bit of damage. They closed, closed down their central um, district offices. They had to actually function out of um, trailers and an entire school, elementary school was, um, was closed down. And so since then, um, we've grown that program. We're still working in Cedar Rapids um, and we're, we've developed this program. I should tell you about it. It's a trauma-informed care program that integrates psychological first aid and motivational interviewing. And so all that jargon is that it is focused on understanding the impacts of trauma and educating the community, especially the teachers who are the, really the first lines of defense for these kids. If a kid comes and has trauma, they're gonna show up in school, they're gonna have those signs that they can't concentrate in school, they can't form relationships, they act out. And that leads to increases in the disparities in discipline referrals, which we see um, throughout the country. Dramatically, we see the school to prison pipeline that continues to um, bring kids, punish them, criminalize behaviors, and then they end up in the prison system. And so we've taken that program, we've integrated 
um, what we call cultural humility training in order to address the trauma of racism and discrimination and reduce implicit bias. So I'm gonna get back now because we're supposed to talk about the film and how it's related. It's very related to the work that I do. I think all uh, Sylvia, Albert, Mark have really touched upon the impacts of trauma, uh, the numbing that Sylvia talks about, um, the exacerbation of racism and poverty that actually continues generation to generation. And there were a couple of things that struck me um, and that we need to keep in mind here is that it's the BIPOC communities um, that experience much, much higher rates of trauma, much, much more. They're more than twice as likely to have seen violence in the community, more than four times likely to be in foster care, more than three times likely to have felt discrimination and racism. Um, we see young black boys in Pine Point who have been continuously exposed to trauma where it struck me, one um, older gentleman said, a vision of their future is one in where jail is inev inevitable and selling drugs is their job prospect. So young boys, because of so much loss, they have difficulty attending school, they act out like they would be in the streets. They need to now take care of their younger siblings and become the man of the house at the age of 12, 11 or 12. Um, for them, it's survival. Um, I think, you know, as a public health professional, um, I got to think about what is the public health approach? It's socio-ecological approaches to prevention. And I think we see that play its part in this movie in which there's research around green spacing. And we sort of see this happening in which they take a community, um, a blighted community. They did have a park there, but it was, um, it was damaged. There was vandalism. It wasn't taken care of. Um, but what I love about this is they added the community engagement. And what do they talk about? Points of connection. An adult connected with an adult, at least three adults. That's what Brian Morton said. Three adults for every child. So you've got green spacing and you've got community engagement and you've got connectedness with people. Um, I see hope in that. Um, but I have to agree with Mark there. There's still areas for building strength. And, and I really was struck and more acutely aware now than ever. I think the whole country is aware about um, police involved violence and the fact that I think they talked about this, that the police arrests were high in that community and the use of excessive physical force was high. So you've got that and then you've got, you know, the, the you know, community engagement. But I really feel that that's a place where they could have really done more. Um, and I think it's a, a place that I think we all need to still tackle today. Wow. Um, thank you for that. Wow. Just thank you for everyone just sharing. A little bit more about themselves and also their reflections, initial reflections from that film. Um, really powerful. And you all are kind of leading naturally into some of the next questions that we have. But here was an interesting question that the film actually presented. Um, if poverty is injuring, injuring children's brains, what is the response? And so what are the long-term effects of childhood violence and trauma? And this, this question is directed to Marizan and Mark, but Albert and Sylvia, please feel free to um, jump in as well with your responses. The long-term effect is, again, we have to understand that our kids are living in this environmental dysfunctional bubble. So once they step outside this bubble, they've been in survival mode so long, they don't know how to just generally relax. 
decompress. So if you, somebody walks up to them, they don't know too quickly, they're in fight or, fight or flight mode. So right there, that's the first effect you see. The second effect is they don't learn self-discipline. It's, it's not that it's not being taught. They don't learn how to embrace it. So when they are in a situation where they're dealing with the police, they know how to respond with it. Because like our kids see the police, we quickly start running. Even if I see the blue lights flashing behind me and they pull me over and I know I'm doing the right thing, I get this sense of uneasy. Like, what's going to happen now? I'm a black man and they're pulling me over and the first thing they're going to say to me is, do you have a weapon? Third thing that comes that when you think about the effect it's having on the kids' brains is how do we get them to learn how to still keep their survival skills, but learn how to cope with socially acceptable behavior where it's not a negative response every time. Thank you for that. Are there others who want to join in as well? Yeah, I was just going to add that in addition to what Albert said, um, it's also difficult for kids to even build healthy relationships with each other, right? Like there's this normalcy of what they see outside and that's how they connect and build relationships. Um, and then as a result, there's the acting out, right? So like if they're disrespected by something that someone did, then they act out and then they get punished. And I think Marism pointed to this about them. There's this like school to prison pipeline. And then you wonder why so many people of color are incarcerated and so on and so forth. Um, and I think, you know, during a time where kids' brains are growing um, and they're constantly in the fight or flight, right? They're in this like red brain, um, red part of their brain. Like imagine just constantly being in a stress response and just like not knowing how to navigate life, right? So like you enter a store and you're constantly in the stress response. You go to school, you're constantly in stress response. You come home, you're constantly in that stress response. And how can you build positivity and how can you be able to kind of restore that harm that's being built to you physically, but also in your brain, right? Because your brain is still developing. Um, there's this really great book called The Body Keeps the Score, which really talks about um, just how trauma lives in the body. And I think, Mark, you talked about this in your intro is like psycho, um, just medical disorders that come about because of stress that just builds in the body and builds in the brain. Um, so I think anywhere from like the instance of the stress and when that comes on into adulthood and when people are aging, it's, it's something that affects everyone just long term. Yeah, and I think... Um with regard to a public health approach or a public policy approach, we can essentially, I think, serve two purposes with significant substantial investment in communities. We can reduce the burden of violence and crime and reduce the burden, the mental health and physical health consequences of vicarious and direct exposure. And I think those two, uh, if we could there are investments in, 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 in programs, I think, or programs that we can invest in, I think that we could see um, with that don't involve the law and law enforcement and aggressive policing that um, could prove successful. And I do think um, we can even look to other countries that have, that rely on an approach, mayors and mentioned green spaces. We know in some Western European nations, they invest heavily in public spaces and the comfort of public spaces. And these are also places where the populations are healthier and people live a bit, um, there's less violence and so forth. Um, so, so I think this is an opportunity for us to, to reap two rewards from substantial investment. 
one thing I've noticed with public spaces, just you know, as a parent as well, people use them. If you build them, people use them. And when your kids are interacting with one another, parents are interacting with one another. And if if parents are concerned about anything, they're concerned about safety for their children and safe spaces. So it would just seem ideal to be able to harness that awareness and turn that into a substantial investment. Um, I just want to add just a few um, things to think about. Um, one is, you know, as an injury and violence prevention researcher, when um, the studies of the ACEs, the adverse child experiences came about in the 1990s, I mean, it was really the point in which violence trauma, um, it, its visibility was raised because of its connection with chronic health outcomes. And so, you know, we're talking about events that happen in childhood traumas, and they're now linked to cancer and heart disease and um, substance use. Um, and of course, later experiences or latter experiences of violence. Um, so I think, you know, that connection is really critical. It took it that much, <laughs> took that much to finally put us on, you know, uh, on the map here. So um, I, I think that's something to think, think about. Um, Another piece is, you know, some of the work that we're trying to do is look at um, actual biological measures of toxic stress. And so some of that research is coming about in which um, we're looking at people who have had trauma and we're seeing spikes in cortisol that you find in um, their hair or in saliva um, that res result from chronic exposures to stress. Um, it's still sort of a mixed bag still, because what's interesting is in, in, in people of color, we're trying to, we, we right now, my research team, we've just found that it's the opposite end, which may be a numbing experience, that these people who have trauma now have depressed cortisol levels, and it's a dysfunction. It's either super elevated in some groups and then chronically depressed in other groups. So, um, you know, kind of getting back to this issue of, you know, what are the outcomes and, um, and adverse outcomes, they're significant. And we're seeing it in chronic health disease later in life. We're seeing it in, um, you know, even some immediate impacts that show up in the schools and um, their, their inability to create um, or establish relationships and then their behaviors um, and in academic performance. Um, and so I, I think its importance is very clear in terms of sort of the life trajectory of youth who experience trauma. Um, and then kind of the last, a last thing to mention, just tagging onto Mark's um, comments about prevention, which I think we should be oriented towards. But there's one area of prevention that I think is really important as we, as a, in a, and as I talk to families of color and we try to understand where is their viewpoint and speaking to them, um, and it's about economic development and workforce development. Um, and I really, really strongly believe that um, that's an area that you know, we in public health should also engage in the efforts to try to provide them, our, our communities or brothers and sisters of color um, who, you know, they can't find the jobs that they're, they're struggling to get food on the table. And if we can't meet those basic needs, um, those then how then are we able to move forward towards you know building community and relationships thank you all for those answers um 
just a tidbit about my research, I also like Mark and Mirrors and focus on ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Um, and I found it so interesting that Sylvia and Albert both had the processes down without the actual scientific terminologies. Like you understand because you're seeing it firsthand what the numbers are telling us as researchers. Um, so keeping that in mind, this question is aimed towards Sylvia and Albert, but everyone else can feel free to respond as well. In the Pine Point film, we saw that chronic, uh, chronic toxic stress plays a role heavily in the Camden community. So how have you seen chronic toxic stress impact your specific community or the communities that you've worked in? During this global pandemic, we've seen it every day now. Uh, in the black and brown community, it, it was a taboo to acknowledge that you had mental illness in your household. It was something we just would not go into counseling. I'm not crazy. But now, during this global pandemic, you got actors, sports entertainers, everybody's coming out, letting the world know it's okay to let them know that you have some social ills going on. Um, we almost can be honest with ourselves during this pandemic. We've had some mental challenges ourselves. So seeing the chronic stressors in my community is um, sad to say when I do a Kitty College reading program, which is for K through third grade, and I go and sit in front of fifth, sixth, seven-year-olds, and I say, Who's, who knows somebody on drugs? 90% of the class raise their hand. Who, you know, somebody that's been shot in the last month? 90% of the classroom raises their hands. What really, really hurts is that we are so used to these stressors that we became so desensitized. It's the common it's the common in our community. You say somebody got shot or you done had three or four long months of winter and the first weekend it gets warm, the first thing we say, somebody gonna get shot this weekend because it warmed up. Those are the chronic stressors that I see all the time. Yeah, I definitely see very similar stressors. Um, I am a social worker by trade, so I guess I play a pretty interesting role in my job because I not only coordinate some of our programs, but I also am able to provide mental health services for our students. Um, and I think in particular, like Albert said, COVID really hit our families and students more, right? They were already at a disadvantage, um, I guess, starting point. Um, and so once COVID hit, it, you know, they were losing jobs, they were losing family members and to just deal with all that. Um, and so I was very fortunate that students and families felt comfortable reaching out to me and asking for help and support. Um, and I think a lot of what I try to do in my role, I'm um, just in my life in general, is really try to destigmatize mental health support and just, you know, like if I'm in therapy, I'm like, yeah, I was talking about this with my therapist and I normalize it as if I'm like, oh, I just went downstairs to the store to get some milk, right? Like and trying to normalize these conversations with youth um, because I think as they continue to have these conversations with their friends, we're continuing to destigmatize this as a whole and mental health is not gonna be as taboo as it used to be some years back. Um, and I think one thing in particular, especially as it pertains to the documentary is the ability of just going out to play 
And I remember one specific moment during the summer when I was working with some students, they were all so excited because the basketball courts were opened again. They had been closed for some time and they were like, yeah, we're all gonna go out, we're gonna hang out. The basketball courts are finally open. And just to see that joy in their eyes, just because the courts were open again, I just, you know, it, it really made me recognize how important outdoor spaces are. Um, and I think it, a couple of the panelists touched upon this, just like green spaces and what folks are doing in other countries. And I feel like if we bring that to this space, we're gonna be able to rehabilitate a lot of the damage that has been done, a lot of the harm that our students have gone through. I just wanted to mention a few things. Um, you know, so I'm in Minneapolis and there were a couple of big events that happened here that I think shifted the world. Um, I also, I live in the community where Philando um, Castile um, actually was right. I live in St. Anthony, Anthony. So the police officer who shot Philando Castile is from um, my, you know, was from my community, occurred about a year before I moved up here. Um, and so it's interesting because I, when I take my walks, um, I walk by the police department and then about a few blocks from there, there's this big art mural of Philando Castile. We see also a lot of um, art um, that depicts um, George Floyd in, in Minneapolis. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, our community is really sensitized to what's happened even, and I'd say, you know, the University of Minnesota is as well. So there's a lot of effort um, right now, finally, I mean, it took a while, but there's now a lot of effort to engage in some training around um, implicit bias um, and racism. There's, um, you know, I still hear, it's kind of interesting, you know, I hear from, um, from, from white men that just feel like this is, um, you know, is really difficult to engage in this kind of, these kinds of conversations and training um, on that space. And so, you know, what I'm seeing now is sort of a community that's been impacted. I see some efforts um, to try to engage in some um, cultural humility training and movement in terms of system, you know, dismantling some of the systemic racism that's pretty deep setted. Um, and then I see other communities that are struggling and pushing back against this and not really uh, truly understanding um, what, what's been happening. Um, and we, I think we see that throughout the country. I mean, you turn on the news and it's there. It still continues despite what we know and what we see. You know, I feel like even kind of a lot that has recently um, been said kind of ties in with some of the work that I do, I study disasters and trends in violence following on that community and, and understanding social vulnerability. And I feel like the what we see, which is the pandemic, which classifies as a disaster and it puts a stressor on communities, just the same as we see the racial tension and, and the struggle and, and the different things that just communities are going through with these compounding effects that are on already existing vulnerabilities. Um, and so it's it's really important that the hard conversations that are, are had, right? Even I feel like for, for far too long, we've had communities of color be uncomfortable and trying to appease everyone so everyone feels happy versus I think now it's time for everyone to feel a little uncomfortable so that we can have the conversations that need to be had so change can actually happen. Um, with that being said, thank you for the response that you all have said so far. We would like to open up um, questions to the audience. And so if you could, you can, just drop your questions down in the Q&A and we will provide those questions to the panelists. And please, as you know, please drop those questions in and we will ask them straight away. 
but we also have other questions we can start with too. So we can start with um, one that we have prepared. So what opportunities do you see in the community to build resilience or prevention or, or diversion programs? Speak to that. Um, one of the opportunities that we utilize with Invisible Book Bag is we have, we sponsor sports camps and they're not your traditional camps. The coaches that I have to work the camp go through a two week training on how to teach life skills because we use sports as the hook to get the kids there. But teaching them to become men is a lifetime. So we take the opportunity to sit them down before they even touch a ball, whoever their group they're assigned to, and just ask them general questions. If you weren't here today, what you would be doing? And that's, that would generate conversation. I ain't gonna tell my age, but there's somebody on your panel who was a little girl who attended the camp a long, long time ago. Couldn't shoot a layup to save her life, but she was the smartest one in her group because her dreams were bigger than the camp. They were bigger than the camp. And not to say that she wasn't getting that wholesome, holistic approach at home, but this environment she was in allowed her to talk and learn how to talk in front of her peers, to feel comfortable about herself. And those are the little things that we really don't take, we take for granted. She learned how to stand up in front of a group and be like, I'm such and such, such and such, and I'm gonna be such and such, such and such. So our camps are geared toward empowerment, civic engagement, because we, and they're all free. The only thing you have to bring is a copy of your grades from school and be willing to do a civic engagement project. And our civic engagement project is, we go back and do something in the community to give back to the community. Uh, after the George Floyd killing or murder, they told Chicago up. And there was places in the city that I got the kids together that was in the camp. And we literally went and cleaned up the blocks to make them take ownership for their neighborhood. And to show the people that we're not the problem. We're actually a small sample size of the solution. Um, I just wanted to build off that, Albert. It's um, really beautiful to hear how that we want to be solution oriented. And I'd say strengths-based, taking a strengths-based approach, um, which, you know, there is such beauty and strength in our communities as well. I remember working at, the, at Compton and talking to kids of color who had to deal with the violence that was occurring in their communities, the shootings. And this young high school girl said, I'm never gonna leave Compton. I love Compton. This is my home. This is my community. Um, and I got my family here and they got my back and I got my girls here and they got my back. And um, I, I, and you see that, I think even in point, 
Pine Point. I mean, people with what they've experienced, they've just got, you know, Brian Morton had that commitment to his community that was just incredible. And he brought in, um, you know, the other coaches together to really commit to, you know, the betterment of the, the young boys and, the, and young girls who are coming, who are in Camden. So, um, you know, I think that, that that resilience should come from really ultimately the community themselves and finding their strengths and engaging them in, in solutions. Um, because, you know, we can come in as researchers and say, hey, we've got the best program in the world. We've got the science that shows that it's all doing really good. It's gonna work for you all. And the answer is it's not unless it's tailored and it engages um, people to come up with their own solutions. Um, and I'm gonna say one thing, you know, I came into Minnesota after bringing the LINK program from Iowa there. And I learned that, you know, and we're working with equity people in communities um, of color. And they said, you know, we don't like to be labeled to have trauma. So don't use that word with our community. Um, you know, trauma gives us a bad rap. So we really had to just step back and say, okay, how do we talk about this in a way um, that's respectful, that's humble, that's um, aware of that perspective that, you know, I think we as researchers come in and we're like, okay, we can use our terms, but those terms may not be exactly what our community members want and need. So engagement is key. Thank you uh, for those responses. In my defense, I can do a layup now. So it's been a long time. <laughs> um, so one of the questions we got from the audience is, how can non-BIPOC, non-Black, um, Indigenous, people of color be involved in the effort to build trust, provide opportunities, bring people together? Do the interventions have to happen within those communities or can they happen between communities? Yes, it can happen between communities. Um, being able to take kids to different communities and show them a different way, and also bringing those kids from that community into the inner city, lets them learn. It's a learning process, it's a give and take. Um, I would recommend anybody that's hard as wants to help to reach out. There's, there's groups that's always volunteering that you can just go in and help help out with. Um, most of the uh, social service agencies on the West side are connected to suburban social services, have linkage agreements where they come in and maybe have a day where they paint, paint the building or sit down and be part of a mentoring group. It allows you to grow the community as well as help that individual understand where they are because it's easy for me to tell you what I've been through but you really don't understand it unless you took a couple of steps in my shoes then you start to really understand wow it's kind of hard waking up every morning and not knowing where, you, where your next meal is going to be coming from Wow, it's really extremely hard going to sleep at night when you're afraid that mommy's boyfriend might come and 
make you his girlfriend. So it's, it's really hard to get people to understand that until they actually can open their heart and open their ears and become almost like a sponge and absorb what's going on. I just want to add something to what Albert said. Um, with the with really any community, you can look at statistics for neighborhoods and communities down to the zip code. I know for a fact in Chicago, um, those people who leave the county jail or the prisons, they return to a handful of zip codes in the city. You can track it down to blocks in, in just small neighborhood areas. If you're neighboring those kind of communities, there's always the opportunity, like he said, to reach out to organizations for doing work. And if you have resources that can be shared, you can share those across those lines easily. Invite their students over to your opportunities. Um, and, and a lot of the times, those concentrated disparities happen within those neighborhoods. So like Sylvia mentioned or earlier, you'll see poverty and violence um, and trauma that just generation uh, just keep cycling through the generations. Um, so that's another opportunity. Any other panelists, please, please feel free to add. I, and I'm gonna say that um, it's about authentic partnerships, being authentic, you know. Uh, we, we've dealt with this, you know, up in um, Native American tribe that we're working with right now. And my trainer is a white um, middle-aged man. And he's he's got to train on these concepts of <laughs> building partnerships and trauma um and he he is he's been honest like this is this is difficult for me this is challenging and I'm here to learn with you so I think it, it's it's just being honest being authentic um understanding that um what cultural humility means um and it it's community engaged partnerships you know and and some of our work we always we do have you know, representatives from the community that help us determine what are the appropriate steps that we need to take to work with our communities if we're engaging them in the research. Um, we want to have representation of their community voice. Um, and they may not even be a person of color. They could be, they could, they, could, they just need to come from that community to help guide us. And to just add a little bit to that, I think also in terms of like that cultural humility also comes like recognizing your privileges and when you come into a space like checking that at the door. I mean, recognizing also the privilege is not just like you're black, you're white, right? It's, it's way deeper than that. It's about access and educational and all that. Um, and so I think that when you're able to come into a space and have that baseline and, you know, just recognize the privileges you come in, then you're able to build trust. You're able to just kind of keep an open eye. And I think not putting the onus on people to educate you, but you do as much education and as much research as you possibly can. Because when we put the onus on others then we're continuing to in a way re-traumatize them because now it's their job to teach you and educate you. And that's what they've been doing their whole entire lives for generations and generations. Um, so I definitely think that that's a big important piece as well. So we have another question from the audience. Um, so there are a lot of great programs and communities for kids, um, but then often these kids go home to environments that are stressed and um, where kind of the work that's done in, in these programs kind of falls apart for these students. And so how can we engage families who are already doing the best they can? Um, and what can we do to support families and strengthen communities? That's a great question. 
and and I say that because a lot of times our parents can't be involved in the programs because they have to work. Uh, and it's, it's even extremely hard to get them to pick up the kids' report cards at report card pickup. They're, they look at it this way. If I put my kid in your program, I'm not asking you to raise them. I'm just asking you to be a supplementary parent. So if you're doing the parenting work, I ain't got to come to the program. Now, but if we offer a, a stipend, well, we're going to have some food. Let's be honest. Chances are they're going to show up. But voluntarily, it's extremely hard to get the parents involved. It's almost like you have to tell them that when they're signing the permission slip for the kids, the kids cannot be in the program unless it's mandatory you do A, B, and C. If you don't make that perfectly clear at the beginning, participation from the parents is really, really low. And all you can do is hope that whatever you instill into those kids for those couple of hours you have them, that they take one thing from it because you only got them two hours. They're in a dysfunctional situation for 22 hours. And that's how you have to look at it. I'll just add, um, we were playing like Zoom mute tag. Um, one thing that uh, I totally agree with what Albert said. And one thing that we do at Beam, something that we're starting as like family committees and parent committees, um, the small tiny step, but even just showing parents like, yes, we're here for your students, but we're also here for you because we recognize that things are systemic and they're familial. Um, uh, so if your programs are able to add a family committee, if you're able to have parent volunteers come in and act as a liaison for other parents, things like that, um, even things so simple as like translating documents and paperwork to languages of the families that you offer services to, I think that can really go a long way because you're letting them know that I see you, I honor you, and like, I want you to be involved to help because as Albert said, like, we're not here to parent your kids, um, but we can help be a mentor and a guide. And with that, we can provide you resources so that you can do it as well. Yeah, Sylvia and I were playing, playing mute tag. Um, yeah, I, I honestly, it's like asking them what they need. Um, and I, you know, I see Lisa Roth here. I remember when we did some of our work with families who, um, whose kids were hospitalized and trying to provide some trauma-informed care supports. And, you know, we we're trying to figure out how can we get people to come to, you know, a focus group and realize, wow, we need to get a babysitter. We need to, and we, we planned for that. We had babysitting, we had, um, you know, the funding for transportation, um, you know, and we wanted it to be enough to cover what, you know, might be some even work loss that could, that need to be considered, you know, and in the work that I'm doing with schools, we're trying to, we actually are giving a portion of our grant to every school district that works with us. And we're trying to hire within the communities so that, you know, they adequately represent what might be the needs of their particular community. Um, and so I think there are some strategies that, you know, um, that could work if, um, if you can, again, it's building that authentic relationship, being honest about asking, and then being, um, you know, putting every effort forward to try to respond to what might be some needs for, um, for, for families that really are, are, you know, struggling to even just get food on the table. Thank you, everyone, for your responses, for your thoughtful um yeah for your thoughtful 
yeah, just very thoughtful, thoughtful responses. Um, it's really important conversation that needs to be had. And this is just the start, right? This is just the beginning of that. So in order to keep track of time, um, this is our final question. And so maybe you have the first response that comes to mind to this final question, but um, what gives you hope? Um, there's a lot of work that you do that is, is very heavy um, on most days. So what, what gives you hope to keep doing the work that you're doing? For me, definitely my students give me hope. Um, I've been working with students since I was like 15 years old. So I've always worked with young people. Um, and I think their passion and their desire to just still be great and resilient is something that I just, I don't know, I look at myself back when I was younger and I'm like, I don't think I had this, you know, passion and this resilience. Um, and I think most importantly, people like Mr. Morton, who was the, the main coach for the baseball team, um, you know, these thought leaders and trailblazers, just their ability and their passion to go into these communities and say, like, I know what it's like, and I want to just rewrite the narrative um, to be able to allow students and future young people to just kind of be their greatest selves and add, and, and, and add more to their communities. Um, and so that's what gives me hope. And I hope that more and more people can, can come up and show up in those ways. Whoever wants to go next. I can jump in. The, what gives me hope as a, as a researcher um, is that there appears to be an interdisciplinary, strong interdisciplinary interest across the medical sciences, biological sciences, social sciences in the social determinants of health and the long-term consequences of violence and stress exposures on uh, health and well-being. And with that, there's also a strong interest among practitioners in using this research as a as a platform from which to develop policies and to draw the attention of people um, who can allocate resources to develop programs that might bring about improvements. Um, I see this, I've seen this the past few years here on campus and elsewhere. And it's, to me, it's, um, it gives me a lot of hope that we are thinking very carefully about the ways the environment comes to affect children and ultimately how that affects their ability to be good citizens and and uh, so forth. So what gives me hope? Um, you know, I, I, I feel, you know, I'm a community engaged researcher sort of developed into that. So um, it's the community that gives me hope. It's the kids, the teachers, the families, um, you know, especially when they're really excited about the work that we do. Um, and in many ways, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm doing a service, I'm like a service researcher. Is that, is that even something? <laughs> but that's where I feel like, you know, my calling is. Um, I, and I'm going to say that, you know, as we've built interventions to support families, the best interventions that we've developed are those that have come through partnerships with the people in the communities that are serving as the interventionists, that are the trainers. Um, and one woman out of, um, you know, um, tribal region of, the, of northern Minnesota said, you know, the best intervention we can provide to children is as adults and as teachers is our own regulated nervous system. Um, and I'll add into that and a community that engages. Albert, do you want to add quickly? Yes, what gives me hope is seeing the dialogue that's taking place here. Um, knowing that there's people within the community who still believe in the hope of changing things. Um, listening to 
middle school kids now thinking about college as opposed to I might not make it past 15. That's hope. Thinking about the opportunities we have now because the global pandemic has made a paradigm shift worldwide. Everybody thinking is went from right to left now. And we see the many shortcomings that we have. Now is the chance to jump on those opportunities, continue teaching, and hopefully bring some stability within our community. Well, first to the panelists, thank you so much for participating in this amazing conversation and for all the work that you are doing to make a change in the lives of youth and in the communities that we are all in. I wanna also thank the audience for attending and asking such great questions, um, as well as the DEI committee and the Injury Prevention Research Center for hosting this event. Wanna be respectful, we went over time a little bit um, and thank you to all the attendees. That's it for our show today. Big thanks to Chelsea Hicks and Robin Espinoza for putting on this exciting event today. This episode was edited and produced by Steve Linsanier. You can find more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Our team can be reached at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Keep on keeping on out there.